Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. How are you? I hope you are enjoying this podcast so far, enjoying this season. It's been really fun. Our last episode on Rome has been getting some really good reviews from colleagues and friends and uh, listeners. Uh, if you haven't checked out, be sure to check it out. Uh, today we're going to dive in. I'm going to start right away without any further ado because we have a lot to kind of cover and I want to really dig into this. Today we're going to talk about Judaism. We're going to return back to Israelite religion, but talk about how Judaism is transformed within a particular context in late antiquity. The transformation from early Israelite religion and temple religion to Judaism and the emergence of a sort of scriptural tradition, and of course the the result uh, resulting also in the emergence of Christianity. Up until now, we've kind of talked about these big empires. What we're going to talk about now is a smaller cultural tradition that is not an empire, but is shaped by the empires we've talked about, particularly Hellenism. When we left, last left Judaism, it was, uh, or early Israelite religions, the Jews and the Israelites had been liberated from Babylon by Cyrus the Great, who was the father or the founder of the Achaemenid Empire. But when the Achaemenids are conquered by Alexander the Great, he conquers Judea. And so Judea um, becomes part of this broader Hellenic Empire. In 323 BCE, Alexander dies and the empire breaks up. The Ptolemies, as we mentioned, end up in Egypt and the, and the Seleucids uh, under Seleucus uh, is in Syria and the Levant. So Judea ends up kind of caught between these two bigger empires. And for a period of time, it kind of moves back and forth. First, Judea is under Ptolemaic control. Then about 200 200 BCE, not not that long later, but 200 BCE, it passes from the Ptolemaics to the Seleucids. We're talking about about 100 or so years of really kind of going back and forth between uh, these empires. And yet, despite which empire rules Judea, the Seleucids or the Ptolemies, they are under a Hellenic domination. And so Judean culture interacts with this much broader imperial culture of Hellenism. Now, last time we mentioned that Hellenism is not just Greek culture. In fact, to cite the very famous historian, Jewish historian, historian of uh, early Jewish history uh, and late antique history, uh, Shea Cohen, he writes, Hellenism ought to to mean not Greek culture, but the fusion of various cultures. In other words, all the sort of Judaisms of the Hellenistic period, uh, of both the sort of diaspora and the land of Israel, were Hellenized. That is to say, they were integral parts of the culture of the ancient world. So the Judaisms that we're talking about in ancient Israelite religion are part of Hellenism and a reaction to Hellenism. We see this in the fact that we start uh, having evidence of Jews adopting Hellenistic practices and even Greek-sounding names. For example, in 175 BCE, a high priest is appointed whose name is Jason. And he's appointed by Antiochus, the ruler of the Seleucids. And Jason, in turn, is very interested in transforming Jerusalem into a Greek polis, that is, a Greek city. He starts to adapt Greek customs and practices, and in particular, Greek architecture. We find in 1 Maccabees uh, 1, 
uh, verses 14 to 15. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to Gentile custom and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. Why circumcision? Why is circumcision such a big deal? And we see this throughout the Maccabees and kind of even the language of Paul. There's a discussion about circumcision, and that is because it is a physical marker of identity. It is a co act of covenant, right? That's what we see in the Bible. It is a covenant between God and his people. There's actually a quite fascinating verse in the, in the Bible that talks about how Moses was not circumcised. So God stalks him, actually kind of chases after him until Zipporah, his wife, circumcises him and places the blood on his feet. And it's just kind of a ritual act and therefore God is appeased. So there's this whole kind of a theological justification for circumcision, but also for, for sociological, cultural, historical reasons. It is an, a marker of identity. It is a marker of being part of an in-group, and that is early Israelite people. Now, why would there be an issue with abandoning circumcision? Well, that's an indication that this other identity that you have this Israelite identity is fading in response to Hellenism, that there's a sort of process of assimilation. Now, whenever there's this mixing of cultures, we always find throughout history this kind of anxiety about purity. The reality is no culture is pure. All cultures are fusions. All cultures are a product of interaction and integration. That's just the reality. The most remote cultures in the world have some contact with the outside world or other cultures. And cultures are a product of years of history, layering meaning upon meaning upon meaning, adding value to custom and practice. But when there's this moment of new cultures interacting, you'll start to see the language of purity. You see a Puritan anxiety. Or we're losing our identity in favor of something new. We hear this, for example, in contemporary American discourse, right? So the language of assimilation, integration, multiculturalism is very aware, or, or I should say, very present in this particular moment in which Judaism or early Israelite religion is interacting with Hellenism. Now, the circumcision becomes an issue because you're building these gymnasiums, these gyms in which people walk around naked. So the nude form, would you could easily see who is and isn't circumcised. So it becomes a, a very visible marker, not just something that you privately do as an act of covenant. You know, the Maccabees goes on in 2 Maccabees 4, 14 to 15. There was such extreme Hellenization that the priests were no longer intent upon the service at the altar, neglecting the sacrifices they hurried to take part in un unlawful proceedings in the wrestling arena. So the wrestling arena, they would be naked, right? So men wrestling with one another, there's a marker. If you're uncircumcised, therefore you're part of Greek culture. Uh, after the signal for the discus throwing, putting the highest value on Greek forms of prestige. And the key word here is prestige. If you were uncircumcised, then you were saying that you were part of the sort of Hellenic world, and therefore you were part of the imperial structures. There were sort of incentives for you to not practice your own culture, but to adopt these new imperial customs of Hellenism, right? So there's a reason why this anxiety comes around. We also see quite overtly, that the Maccabees have a perspective of their own. The book of Maccabees is written from the perspective of someone who is very much against Hellenism, who is a proponent of the Maccabees themselves. Now, the Hellenistic culture wasn't just seen as a sort of a soci sociological threat or a cultural threat. Hellenism wasn't just a philosophy that was adopted, but there was a component of imperial and military coercion that early Israelite people faced in Judea and Jerusalem.
in 167, Antiochus IV, that is Antiochus IV uh, Epiphanes, the Seleucid emperor and ruler actually prohibits a variety of different Jewish practices. So you can no longer allowed to be circumcised, you're no longer allowed to participate in ritual rites, and he goes even further and desecrates the temple. He actually raids the temple, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and takes all the silver and gold and takes it away. Now, why is this important? Why should we even care about this? Well, because it, it's a moment of deep crisis for your identity. The thing that you that you center your communal identity around, the temple, is desecrated. We already saw when the, the temple was destroyed that there was a sort of logic that emerged within the Bible to help justify and articulate and make legible that experience. And that was the experience of, well, there's this one God and God rules over things and this is part of his plan. The Maccabees, we say, we see the same thing. In 2 Maccabees 5.15, Antiochus dared to enter the most holy temple in all the world. He took the holy vessels with his polluted and corrupted hands. But the Lord did not choose the nation for the sake of the place, but the place for the sake of the nation. Now, why is that significant? Because what we're seeing is a shift away from the temple and Jerusalem as singularly holy. It's holy not because the place is holy, but because the people are chosen. It's an identity shift. So if early Israelite religion was wrapped up in the temple, the temple is destroyed, and so what emerges is the discourse of the law to make a mobile temple. Take the temple and its practices with you in exile. But then you're able to rebuild the temple, so the law and the temple work hand in hand to form your identity. What then happens when that new temple is desecrated? You're left with just the law. It is the, the people and their practices that are holy and chosen by God. The temple is holy because the people are holy. So the temple itself, this is a way of kind of not delegitimizing. The temple is still important. The Maccabees care about the temple, very clearly care about the temple, right? But the temple is no longer wrapped up in identity. It is just one feature alongside the law. And it is indeed this kind of act of violation, this act of desecration that leads Israelites to resist. So while some Israelite people were adopting Hellenic culture, others violently resisted. And so kind of what emerges are two, two traditions that are parallel to one another. That is violent resistance and messianism. The violent resistance is led by Mathathias and his five sons in 164 BCE. Uh, Judah, one of the sons of Mathathias, also known as Judah Maccabee, Maccabee being the Hebrew word for the hammer, they fight back. They fight against Antiochus. They lead a violent resistance against this overwhelming imperial force, and they're finally able to retake Jerusalem in 164. This is a big deal. We've had this moment in which the Holy of Holies and the Temple and the Jews are under the dominion of either the Ptolemies or the Seleucids for about 200 years or so. And now about 150 years, roughly. And now there's liberation. There is a moment in where you're finally able to completely overthrow foreign rule. They purify the Temple, they rededicate it so the Temple is still holy again, but the damage has been done. 
right? This is a moment in which, you know, the, the temple was violated. And so they represent the sort of violent resistance to Hellenism. While there's another branch that emerges, Messianism, that also tries to make legible the experience of the temple being violated. The Maccabees establish a dynasty of their own known as the Hasmonean dynasty. It lasts from about uh, 142 to about 63 BCE, a little bit longer or so. But what ends up happening is that within this context, Messianism is wrapped up in the monarchy. If the violent resistance is to overthrow the foreign rule, then the Messiah is a spiritual figure, an anointed monarch who will liberate Israel, liberate the Jewish people. So Messianism, the Messianic kings, are these chosen spiritual figures that are also political leaders. And in some ways, the Messianic king is not too different from the sort of cult of emperor that we see in Rome. The difference is the Messiah isn't God, but he's intimately tied up to that same, you know, same component of religion. Loyalty to the emperor is what produces Roman identity, which is then reformed through religio and cultus practices, through religious practices that demonstrate your loyalty to the empire. In messianic kingship, it is the loyalty to the Messiah, following the Messiah, liberating Jerusalem that makes you a Jew or at least a Judean at this point in time. We might not have the idea of Jew until later. There's a bit of conflict and, and debate here. But Messianism becomes very clearly tied up with the monarchy. It's not just, you know, a, a figure that comes and spiritually saves people. No, under the Hasmoneans, because of the particular experience in which salvation and resistance emerge in response to Antiochus IV and the Seleucids, that Messianism becomes a sort of political uh, you know, office, if you will. The Messiah is a political office. And it is salvation from the empire. Right, So there is a sense here that when we talk about salvation, that it's not just saving of the souls we're talking about. We're talking about the literal experience of saving from empires. Right, Here is a kingdom that is caught between two larger, more powerful kingdoms, Right, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. These are empires that are overwhelmingly powerful. These are empires that have massive militaries. And if you're a small kingdom, that seems almost apocalyptic to you. That seems like it's the end of the world to you. It's why messianism is tied to the notion of the end of the world, because guess what? If the Seleucids decide to wipe out Jerusalem, they can wipe it out. Functionally speaking, just from a like base reality, it is the end of your world. Maybe it's not ap apocalyptic in the sense of the sort of, you know, meteor hits the world or, the, you know, whatever. But it is certainly the end of your world, Jerusalem coming to an end. So we see that apocalypticism, the end, emerges within these moments of imperial crisis. And in some ways, this also helps us to understand Muhammad and Islam much later on. Well, Muhammad doesn't claim to be a messiah and rather recognizes Jesus as the messiah. His mission, as Garth Fowden calls it, the kind of third way, if you will, is very much an attempt to liberate Arabia from the imperial collision of the Byzantines and the Sasanians.
And you can read Bauer Sock's books on this, though, both The Throne of Adulies, Collision, Empires in Collision, uh, as well as Garth Fowden's book in some regards. But we see this kind of notion of, of liberation from empire really start in uh, Israelite religion in late antiquity. But Messianism isn't kind of the only movement. Three Judaisms, we can call them, Judaisms, plural, emerge within this kind of Hellenic, Hasmonean moment from about the, the 142 on, from the Seleucids on. And the first of them are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are those that are generally high priests. These are the Cohens. These are the people who are officials of the religion. And they have a much stronger relationship with Hellenism. And the reason why they have such a strong relationship is because their function is an official function. Their function is an imperial function. Religion is intimately tied to the state, and the Jewish state was under the control of the Seleucids for a long period of time. So the Sadducees, though they are high priests of the temple, have access to the temple because they've negotiated to some degree with the Hellenists. Now, that's not to say that they are the only ones that do. In fact, the next group, the Pharisees, also absorb some Hellenic components. The Pharisees are the second group. And they are referred to in Josephus, who is a, a Greek-speaking Jewish historian, in his book Antiquities, uh, they, he writes that they believed, they say, that all souls are incorruptible, but that the souls of good men are own, only are removed into their bodies, but that the souls of bad men are subject to eternal punishment. What does that mean? That means we start to see the, the uh, beginnings of a particular eschatological talk a particular conception of the end of times and that a conception of death. And that is the notion of an afterlife, an afterlife that includes reward and punishment. That's a Hellenic concept. That is a Greek concept of Tartarus in the Elysian fields. That is a Greek concept of Hades in the afterlife that is being absorbed into Jewish thought. And so the Pharisees are an example of one way in which Hellenism is absorbed, a product of Hellenism. But in turn, they are also a response to Hellenism. The fear that uh, that Jewish identity was being erased, that Judean identity was being erased and lost in this broader Hellenic experience. And so they emphasize, they see the temple in the hands of the Sadducees, they see the temple in the hands of originally the, the Seleucids, of these kind of corrupt officials, and so they emphasize the law, and not just the law, but the oral tradition, the Mishnah. They become the doctors of ritual traditions. They become the doctors of the law, experts on how to practice your life every single day, living as you would with the temple in your daily life, even if you do not have physical access to the temple. The famed uh, historian of early Christianity, Scott Barchi at UCLA, actually says that what the Pharisees do is they take the temple home. The temple and the altar becomes the dinner table. The practice of Passover, the practices of purification at home, that is all temple religion, the practices of the law brought home. These experts in the law are circling the bandwagon. We will demonstrate our identity by ritual practices, by practicing and enacting the very specific components of the oral tradition. Not just the law, but the law taken to its umpteenth expression.
And by doing so, you therefore preserve the communal imagined self, the communal identity of the Judeans in response to the overarching Hellenism. But despite that kind of we will preserve, you also see the negotiation and the absorption in the case of the sort of afterlife that emerges. The third group, the third Judaism, if you will, are the Essenes who establish themselves in Qumran. Uh, this is where we get kind of the Dead Sea Scrolls and whatnot. And this is a, a community that has completely given up on the temple. The temple has failed. It is corrupt. All the other Judeans are considered sons of darkness. Then all you can do is live a communal life with communal property, communal, uh, uh, you know, eating, uh, large kind of uh, tables in which people all eat together, practice purity, and wait it out. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the end. They are apocalyptic. We don't know a lot about the Essenes, but we do know that they were they reject the other two. These three forms of Judaisms are both part of Hellenic culture and a response to Hellenic culture. So it's important to recognize that there is a sort of dialogical process here, and they are done so within the context of empire. Now, that other tradition I mentioned, resistance, also finds purchase in an in a kind of fourth tradition, if you will, a fourth philosophy, according to Josephus, who writes in the Antiquities. But the fourth set of Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean, was the author. These men agree in all things with the Pharisaic notion, so they were kind of like Pharisees. But they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death, nor indeed do they heed their deaths of their relations and friends, nor can such fear make them call any man Lord. So these are people who are part of the Pharisaic tradition, but fuse it with that resistance and messianism that we saw in the Hasmoneans. The argument being that they will recognize no Lord, that is no no, no Lord from the Seleucids, no foreign empire, they will recognize none but the Lord in heaven but God and God alone. This kind of resistance tradition is often referred to as the zealots. Some call them the sakari. The sakari is uh, the word for knife, and what they would do is they would walk through Jerusalem until they found an imperial official. Then they would pull out their knife and stab that person and run off. They were sort of the kind of early, late, antique examples of kind of political violence, violent resistance, individual resistance, a uh, sort of insurgency against a more powerful empire. And in particular, their response was not just to the Seleucids and Hellenism, but they emerge within the Roman context. Rome conquers uh, Jerusalem in 63 BCE. Pompey Magnus, that is one of uh, Julius Caesar's original allies, who then uh, they turn on one another, conquers Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes a client state of the Roman Empire. They become uh, just another kingdom that Rome adds. They rule through an agent. Herod the Great from 37 to 4 BCE rules in uh, Rome's uh, name. In fact, uh, Josephus' Antiquities tells us that he refers to Rome as the rulers of the world. And he builds Jerusalem and Judea into a Roman province. He builds the city of Caesarea, he builds gymnasiums and amphitheaters, and he represents the physical representation of Rome's might in Jerusalem. Now, why does this matter? Well, he is part of this dynasty that originally resisted the Seleucids. 
He is of the Hasmoneans, right? So you have this moment in which the king of the Jews is no longer a resistance symbol against the empire. Where the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees were that. They represented the sort of fusion of messianism, resistance, and monarchy. Now you had Herod the Great, who was an agent of the Romans. And it is in this particular context that we see Jesus emerge. Jesus is seen as part of a broader cultural religious milieu in late antique Roman Palestine, in Judea. He is. Um, he arrives at a time in which you have these contested Judaisms, in which you have imperial domination by the Romans, who have basically succeeded uh, where the uh, Seleucids had failed. They had exerted their power over um, the the Judean people, and they had a monarchy that had fundamentally been corrupted. A temple that had fundamentally been corrupted by the Sadducees. And he comes into this. We don't know a lot about his life. We don't know a lot outside of the Bible uh, what happened to him or, or what his life was about. But most historians are pretty confident in believing that Jesus or a Jesus-like character existed historically. It's a little bit shakier ground, but we do know that there's probably some Jesus character. And if he existed, then he was likely part of this kind of broader debate of the Judaisms. And he was probably of the Pharisaic tradition. We know that he was circumcised. He grew up in the practicing the Pharisaic traditions. And most of his critique in the Bible, in the New Testament, if you will, the Gospels, is directed at the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus' early message, as we historians understand it, is a response to the Pharisees. He is a Pharisee, perhaps having some Essene connections as well. Perhaps John the Baptizer or John the Baptist uh, was a Essene himself. He anoints Jesus, uh, baptizes him. But we see, for example, Matthew 23, 1, 1, 1 through 5, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. So Jesus is not rejecting the Pharisaic tradition. He doesn't reject the law. He upholds the law. He says the Pharisees are right. They sit on Moses' seat. They are the inheritors of Moses, who is the kind of ultimate prophetic figure in the Bible. Follow what they teach you. He himself is referred to as teacher, as rabbi. So he was probably a Pharisee. But he was a Pharisee reformer who saw that the Pharisees had failed, that all these traditions, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had failed. He goes on, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. So his critique, his polemic, if you will, against the Pharisees is from within the tradition itself. He's not an outsider that goes, look, this tradition is wrong. We need to abolish it. He goes, no, I am a Pharisee and we need to reform the Pharisaic tradition. Look what is happening. He's already to some, to some degree abandoned the temple. 
This is a temple that had been already been violated by the Antiochus, who now is under the hand in the hands of the Sadducees. Now Rome was dominating uh, Judea. The temple is lost, but we can still practice our law if we enact it in our lives righteously. But the Pharisees are not doing it either. So I am going to reform that tradition. So we see him very much as a response to Hellenism, but also as a response to Rome, where he says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto Caesar. Now, most people see this as a sort of give the Romans their tax. Why is that important? Well, that's a recognition here, first and foremost, that Rome was establishing authority in Judea, but a particular type. Remember, the Romans were relatively tolerant of most religions. They saw religion as a sort of ordering principle by which you can govern people. So they would enter into a, a province, they would conquer a people, and they would integrate what they could integrate. They could bring it in within the Roman pantheon. They tried to do the same thing with the, with the Israelite religion. They saw the monotheistic tradition as, as kind of quaint and odd, but it was old. And so they had some respect for it, so long as, as, as the Israelite people also made sacrifices to Jupiter Maximus and to the emperor. Why? Because those sacrifices are not just, you know, acts of personal faith. They're acts of the state. That is an indication that you recognize the authority of Rome. So, so in one hand, we have Jesus saying, I'm here to reform the Pharisaic tradition. Do as they teach, but live righteously. Don't be hypocrites. And on the other hand, he's saying, give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Why does that matter? Why do we care about that? Well, that's because we're, what we see here is a redefining of what it means to be a Messiah. The Messiah for Jesus is not a political liberator. He is not of the zealot tradition. He draws from that messianic tradition, but he decouples it from the monarchy. If early Israelite religion was saying, if, or at least Israel religion under the Hasmoneans says that the Messiah is king, then Jesus was saying, no, the Messiah is a reformer. He's a spiritual leader who has come to liberate you spiritually, if not politically and physically. This becomes the central message as far as we understand it in early Christianity, which at this point isn't Christianity. It's a form of reformed Judaism. It is just another Judaism that has emerged. It is of the Pharisaic branch. It adopts the Pharisaic practices. It continues to see the Pharisaic emphasis on the law as central to identity. It simply argues that there is a reformation needed to live out spiritually what the law is saying in its letter, to internalize the law, not as a series of empty rituals, but as more Moral and ethical traditions is why he emphasizes feed the hungry and the poor and so on and whatnot. This becomes the central core of his messianism. To recreate Jewish society on righteous ethical lines. A moral messianism. An ethical messianism. And that is, be, that is what he really puts forth. Now, we see that it's likely that early that the various Jewish communities would have found that message appealing, that only the elites would have had an issue with this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who would have seen his polemic as a threat to their authority. Jesus himself, we have no real evidence that he puts forth, you know, any notion of, 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 of you know, in 
true salvation or I'm going to die for you or, or any of that really. We don't know. And I'm not saying that that stuff isn't true or I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss the religious beliefs of people. I'm simply saying that the historical conditions were not quite clear about. And this is true of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, any religion. that A lot of the kind of tenets take years to develop. That They don't just emerge ex nihilo in that particular moment. But there's a context there. And so the context for us, as far as we can see, is Jesus decoupling Messianism as a result of the uh, Roman domination. We're not going to fight the Romans. We're not interested in fighting the Romans. Instead, we need a moral reform, an ethical reform. This is a Pharisaic tradition. And we this doesn't fully uh, transform or doesn't fully move over into Messianism uh, until really Paul of, of Tarsus, originally Saul. Now, Saul is, is a Pharisaic, a Greek-speaking Jew. He ha he's got some Hellenic connections like um, everyone else in, in late antiquity. Um, and he starts off as a sort of persecutor of this early movement, the, what we would, the Stigman brothers call a Jesus movement, right? A Jewish movement that, that really kind of centers the messianism of, of Jesus and his message. He's originally a persecutor, and he's not fond of it, but he has this Damascene conversion. On the road to Damascus, he sees a vision, or he reputedly sees a vision. Now, from then on, he becomes a convert, or at least he absorbs uh, that tradition and becomes part of that tradition. That's not considered, though we often see it as a sort of kind of radical change, it's not that radical of a change. Yes, he was a persecutor originally, but he's not leaving his religion. He's still a Jew. He's simply part of a different sect, a different philosophy, as uh, Josephus would, would call it. Um, but he doesn't actually ever physically, as far as we know, meet Jesus. And he, more than any other figure in the Bible, brings uh, this Jesus movement into its Hellenic moment. It absorbs more of Hellenism than any other tradition. The Logos as a Hellenic concept becomes really central uh, for, for the representation of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's really Paul that does this. And he does this by defining this movement in opposition to the other Judeans, the other traditions. He writes, for example, in Galatians uh, 3 uh, verses 7 to 8, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by, Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel before to Abraham, saying, all the Gentiles should be blessed in you. So in many ways, what we start to see under Paul is an opening up of early Israelite religion from a temple religion, from messianism for the Jews to a moral universalist religion. Everybody is a descendant of Abraham. He redefines, in the same way that Jesus redefines the Messiah from a mon monarchical figure, from a king to a reformer, an ethical reformer, so too does Paul of Tarsus redefine what it means to be a descendant of Abraham. To be a Jew is no longer a tribal definition, but a spiritual definition. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. It is belief. It is loyalty to the Messiah. It is loyalty to the message 
that defines you. So we have still this kind of notion that there's a the community is based in directing your your faith towards someone in the same way the cult of the emperor, right? You are Roman because you have an emperor and you honor that emperor. You become part of the Roman Empire. That's how the provinces are incorporated. So to here, the Gentiles who are outside the tribe are incorporated by loyalty to this Messiah, right? Through faith in that Messiah. This is where we start to see a division between the Jesus movement and the Pharisaic tradition, which eventually becomes rabbinic Judaism. It becomes the most dominant form of the Judaisms that emerges. The Essenes get wiped out, the Sadducees lose their authority when the temple is destroyed in 7 CE by Titus. Now, even though Paul lays down the foundation for separating away the Jesus movement from the Judeans, it, isn't a, uh, it doesn't happen in his lifetime. We still see that these traditions coexist and they see themselves as one singular family tradition with different sort of philosophies for about 100 to 200, maybe even 300 years. That it takes a series of centuries, a couple centuries before there's a full division. That this is a process and is a process that is again experienced through the empire. With the destruction of the temple in 70 CE by Titus, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees had lost their authority. The Essenes are basically gone and what's left are the pharisees with their emphasis on the law thus gives birth you know the incident gives birth to rabbinic judaism a judaism rooted in the oral tradition identity no longer needing a temple but now working through ritual and practice to create communal identity the resistance, however, continues on. That violent component of resistance that we continue with the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132, who also is a messianic figure. And, and in fact, when, when Rabbi Akiba saw Bar Kokhba, he actually says, this is the king Messiah. But in turn, Rabbi Jonathan bin Torta has said to him, Akiba, the grass will grow out of your cheekbones and the, uh, before the Messiah comes. Meaning that the Messiah isn't here and he's not going to show up in your lifetime. The move from rabbinic Judaism away from messianism is a result of first, the destruction of the temple and then two, the Bar Kokhba revolt, which bans forces, which leads the Romans to banning all Judeans from Jerusalem. The loss of Jerusalem, that you lose the temple, you first lose the king, then you lose the temple, then you lose the holy city. That's traumatic, and that trauma is a result of what? Violent resistance and messianism. So rabbinic Judaism rejects that messianism. And by rejecting that messianism, we start to see a partitioning, a further partitioning between Christianity, what becomes Christianity, and what becomes rabbinic Judaism. In turn, while the Jews go, while the what becomes the rabbinic Jews reject messianism because of its failures, first they lose the temple, first they then they lose the king, then they lose the temple again, then they lose who's uh, the city. The rejection of messianism means that the the Christians are the remnant of the messianic tradition. So it becomes. Messianism becomes distilled, central to the debate between Christianity and 
rabbinic Judaism. It is that imperial context of Rome destroying the temple and then crushing this rebellion that really further partitions Judaism and Christianity. There's actually a fantastic book, Boyarin's Borderlines, The Partition of Judeo-Christianity. When I was uh, doing my, when I was finishing up my, my dissertation, or when I was doing my PhD, I should say, the coursework for my PhD, um, I was finishing my orals, uh, and the orals are kind of comprehensive exams uh, in which your committee members, four of them or so, will give you a book list that represents the entire historiography of, of their speciality or the things that you want them to do. And so my background is in history of the Middle East, uh, history of religions, uh, uh, North Africa, South Asia. And so my book list included that. So I had, you know, late antiquity and early Islam uh, book list, uh, the historiography. I had modern Middle East historiography with Mark Levine. And then I also had uh, uh, Judaism and late antiquity from uh, Professor Matthias Lehman, who was one of my co committee members. And I read uh, for him this book, The uh, Borderlines, and it is a phenomenal book. And what he really argues in it, that there it takes about three centuries to differentiate between Judaism and Christianity. And it is really the influence of Rome that is a result of that partitioning. We have evidence that these communities still lived side by side and saw themselves as part of one group. Uh, he, know, he, for example, cites Jerome, who writes on the sect of the Nazareans, who, quote, are to be found in all synagogues of the East among the Jews. You have Jews and you have Nazareans who are all kind of together. Nazareans would be the early Jesus movement. That the borders between these communities are a product of the construction of orthodoxy and heresy. Heresy lays down a line that creates religious identity. In other words, rabbinic orthodoxy opposes the heresy of the two powers in heaven, that is, Jesus as Messiah in heaven. The Hellenic components of Messianism, of Messianism is transformed from a reformed Pharisaic tradition under Jesus to an incorporative Messianism under uh, Paul, and over centuries how that is then redefined within the language of Hellenism. In other words, Christianity becomes Romanized, and in response to the Romanization of Christianity, Judaism rejects Messianism as a consequence of the Bar Kokhba revolt. In some ways, as the Bar Kokhba revolt happens, the, the Christian community goes, we need to become more Roman. We're not going to rebel against Rome, even though they end up being persecuted as well. But they don't want to rebel against Rome. They Romanize much easier. Whereas the Jewish tradition, the rabbinic tradition, rejects Messianism, which had led them down this path of failure, and emphasizes the law. What happens is that Judaism rejects the Romanized religio that Christianity becomes, where we get the kind of modern sense of what religion means. And instead, they ethnicize identity. Thus, rabbinic Judeans become Jews, and Christians become Gentiles. That's a kind of complicated argument here, but I really want to emphasize this point. that The experience of revolting against Rome and then losing and really sets these two sects down different roads. And by rejecting or accepting the Messiah, redefining what it means to be part of the community, Christians define you can be part of the community, community so long as you accept the Messiah. In other words, they accept a sort of Romanized interpretation of religio. Loyalty to the emperor, 
or in this case, the Messiah, means you are part of the community. Rabbinic Judaism, on the other hand, says by rejecting the Messiah, instead we ethnicize religion. We are defined along tribal lines, defined along family lines that refine, define, and enact their identity through the practice of the law. Now, that is very interesting. In other words, what Boyardin says, there is now virtually no way that a Jew can stop being a Jew since the very notion of heresy finally rejected and refused to be, in the end, a religion. So rabbinic Judaism rejects Roman religio and ethnicizes uh, religion. Both of these traditions, however, are a response to the climate of Hellenism, the imperial context of Rome, and have ideas about messianic kingship. Early Israelite religion is really absorbing under the Ahasmoneans this notion of a messiah king, a political liberator, who as a result of that leads to resistance to the empire. And the resistance to the empire leads to the loss of both the monarchy, the temple, and Jerusalem, the central sacred sites of early Israelite religion. And to make legible that experience, to survive that imperial context, Judaism is redefined from Judean traditions to rabbinic Judaism, the practice of the law. On the other hand, Christianity, in response to Hellenism and Roman imperialism, redefines Messianism first as an ethical reformist movement, an ethical messiah, a moral messiah, a reformer messiah, to a messiah that extends his ethical message throughout the world. It Romanizes, in other sense, loyalty to the messiah means you were part of the in-group. And as it further Romanizes, it becomes Christianity, absorbing Roman practices, uh, Roman festivals, and so on and so forth. And that is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about the Byzantine Empire and Roman Christianity. This episode was hopefully interesting for you. I'm ho- I hope you were able to follow my thread here. It is a bit convoluted and complicated and messy, as all good history is, but this is some fascinating stuff. The way in which Judaism and Christianity kind of define themselves against one another within an imperial context helps us understand our broader theme of empires of faith, how empires are shaped by religion and religion shape empires hopefully this was useful to you and enjoyable if so please don't hesitate to head over to itunes or the podcast app and leave a five-star review with some comments i love it on the last uh, episode we're going to read out some of those comments um if you or you can you know if you have questions or issues hit me up on social media at aaolomi or use the hashtag head on history anyways i'm going to end it here for today and hopefully i will see you all next week thanks for tuning in and remember stay smart you beautiful history nerds Thank you.